When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, December 9th. On today's show, we conclude Peaks and Valleys Week with a look at the players we believe are capable of potentially ascending to world number one in the 2023 season. Now, this is certainly an abstract exercise. You're going to do a little bit of projecting, have to take a leap of faith when making the argument for each of these players, but certainly Certainly, this was a fun discussion to have on the podcast today. That much more enjoyable, given the fact that we were joined by returning champion, dear friend of the show, former Stanford All-American, top 100 ATP player Bradley Klon. In summary, I guarantee all of you listeners will enjoy today's episode. And again, if you want to look at any of the peaks and valleys we saw in 2022 on the ATP and WTA Tour, just scroll down on your mini break podcast feed, Dave. David Kane, Gil Gross, Jeff Chisiver, just a fantastic week of podcasts covering all of those storylines as they relate to the tennis world. So certainly, if you've missed out, highly recommend you go back, check out some of the old episodes this weekend. Of course, if you're looking for more college tennis content, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed. We've counted down our number 10 and 9 preseason Division I men's and women's teams. That countdown will continue next week as well, both on the G. GSP and on the Cracked Interviews podcast, where I hope to speak with each of the head coaches of our preseason top 10 teams. But with all of that said, you didn't come to hear the plugs. You came to hear the players we believe have the potential to reach world number one. You're also going to hear a little bit of a conversation of how BK structures his offseason, how he believes most pros approach each and every training block in the off uh, season of portion of the year. Again, very fun conversation. We know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. So with that in mind, a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15, but let's get to it. Here is my conversation looking at off-season training and picking the next world number one with the one and only Bradley Klon. Joining us on the podcast to help us conclude Peaks and Valleys Week here at Crack Rackets is a returning champion here on our shows. Of course, you know him best as a former NCAA singles champion while at Stanford. Of course, during his pro career, he reached the top 100, but perhaps in the pinnacle of his professional life over the course of this past summer, he joined us as our commentator for the USTA SoCal Pro Circuit. Welcome back onto our Crack Rackets airwaves, our dear friend, Bradley Klon. BK, welcome back to our show. It's good to see your smiling face. How are you doing today? I'm great. It's great to be back with you guys. Always a pleasure. Love that time commentating, working together on the SoCal Pro Circuit, and just always a pleasure to have me back on. Pinnacle of the career, did I lie? No. 
I mean, that's that's the way my career's turned out the last couple of years. I think I've done more commentating than playing. So, you know, we're we're slowly getting healthy again and and changing that narrative. But uh, no, it was an awesome, awesome time together and hope we get to dabble in it a little bit more. Absolutely. I will forever. I mean, again, top 100 pro, there were many peaks and it's peaks and valleys week. We're looking at who thrived, who didn't here on the mini break podcast. For me, peak BK fandom will always be you beating Shabazz in the 2011 quarterfinals because like I have never seen someone do. I mean, what you and Thatcher did to Michael and, and Damajan that day. That's like the, that's a peak of a college tennis career. That was fun. I mean, look, this might be uh, what's the right? It's over a decade ago, which just makes me well, devastated. That's, that's frightening. <laughs> yeah. My my ten year college reunion was in October, oh, so yeah, 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 we don't we don't need to. <laughs> I, I don't have any gray hairs yet that we can see. We don't need to go into that. But um, yeah, that you know, I'd almost argue I winning NCAA's is a, in singles was a tremendous accomplishment. It opened up my career. He gave me that opportunity to play the U.S. Open. All, all these things for my personal career. But if we're just talking about Stanford and college tennis, those matches, junior year at NCAA's were as good as it gets because it's the environment there was insane. I'd never played in anything like that. Just the the partisan crowd we had <laughs> yeah. playing. Uh, against Texas A&M on Thursday night and then coming back and playing Virginia on Saturday and just seeing the, seeing the crowd. I mean, there was, you had everything in sight there. We had fraternity brothers getting kicked out, um, <laughs> dressing in costume, the, just the local community rallying behind the team. And then to see the performance that we able to, were able to put on and, He'll push Virginia, who'd obviously been one in the country, just a, a stalwart throughout. Mm-hmm. So that that match stands out as that was special. Setting a break up was Alex Clayton at three. I don't need to tell you, as you know, um, it was one. No, it was just it was one of those days. I mean, again, you can go watch the highlights on YouTube. There was actually like a streak from like 2011 to 2013 where my YouTube formula, like always recommended for you, would be that 2011 quarterfinal UVA Stanford. So like. I have it memorized, the clip of you hitting the inside-out forehand winner on Shabazz and getting him guessing and then a big fist pump from BK. Like, I can see it so clearly in my head, which uh, devastating. I know, again, you, take it take it for whatever uh, you Your find. YouTube algorithm has good taste, apparently. <laughs> That's a good call by you. Who played one for A&M? Was it Dadamo, Krejcik? Who was one at that time? I played Krejcik. Yeah. Dadamo played two and. Uh, this guy Alexei Grigorov yeah, played sure. three. You guys and, beat him pretty comfy uh, I, in that round of sixteen, if memory serves me correct. Yeah, that one was tough. We lost a doubles point. It was a yeah. great double. I mean, that was when we actually played Krychek Damo in the finals of the NCAA's doubles that year, and we had played them at indoors in the fall, and then that doubles point came down to our match at one, and it was. It was 9-8 back when we actually played an eight-game pro <laughs> set for all the college tennis fans. Yes, that's how the format used to be. Yeah. 
we did play ads. You know, it's a little, <laughs> little weird. <laughs> yeah, no. Doubles points used to be like an hour, 20 minutes. Oh, oh, I, I've USC and UCLA matches were uh, bring your lunch and your dinner <laughs> and we'll duke it out after the sun goes down because those would start at 1, 1.30 and we were not leaving there until – I mean, we had five-hour matches. Yeah. It was – it was crazy. It was not sustainable, to say the least. And uh, honestly, uh, you know what? We can have that debate a different time of what the college tennis format should or shouldn't look like versus ad and no ad scoring. I do want to ask you quickly because it feels relevant to all levels of tennis. We saw this at the Davis Cup where they've shortened the format singles, singles, doubles now last. I kind of love doubles last, especially for college tennis where you're like, the first 40 minutes of singles don't matter, right? So let's get those first 40 minutes out of the way at the start. That way, when people have already invested an hour, now it's like, well, am I going to stay for two more hours? You're like, well, I have to because now comes the relevant stuff, then maybe a double sprint at the end. What do you think about doubles last? That's a, you know, we've played... I played a couple doubles points last in college when we would have issues with rain and we were yeah. trying to get the match in. And it is more exciting, mm-hmm. but you run the risk of not playing it if a team wins four out of the six singles. So I understand why they put it first. And it was different when, you know, even before I played when they had – each doubles point counting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Two out of three sets once upon a time. Y- yeah. And so you had out of nine points. So you would have had to win five of the six singles mm-hmm. to clinch the match. And I believe they played the doubles last then. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, I guess you just though I'd hate to see the doubles. If it was last, it's at risk of being forgotten. Yeah. No, I think so it's fair. I would also say that's my only. Yeah, that's my only hesitation because it is more exciting. Like, you, there's no doubt about it. If you get a three-all match, and you've got the doubles point deciding it, and you have three, especially now with the format, one set no ad sprints. That's oh, there's going to be some tension. I, I want to see saying. those nerves. Yeah, I don't know how well you know Adam Shafterly at Pepperdine. I'm sure you know him a little bit. He's a big proponent of do that, but make it make it a 10-point tiebreak. So you want to talk about like sprint and nerves. It's a sprint and nerves in that 10-point breaker. From a fan perspective, from a product perspective, that would be incredible But to your point, and I think more broadly, I'm not sure if this is the exact number right now, but at one point this season, there were 37 players with college ties inside the top 100 of the ATP doubles rankings. Hard to see that sustaining if, to your point, you de-emphasize doubles, right? Yeah, they're right. I agree. On tour, if you're not a doubles specialist, Mm -hmm. look, I'm not practicing doubles. I'll practice volleys you know, transition, serve, return, all the components that make up doubles. But I'm not actually practicing doubles. When we were in college, we had, you know, we didn't set aside full days to doubles, but we set aside 30 minutes, 45 minutes on multiple days a week where we were working on like actual doubles, whether it was playing games, 
straight up or working on doubles drills. And to your point, that's where a lot of the fundamentals show up and why so many, I believe why so many college players are so successful in doubles. Yeah, I think it's really well said. It comes down to the situational awareness, right? Like it's just, it's really hard to replicate, oh, stretching wide, hitting a half volley down the line while I'm watching to see if that guy's poaching. Like that's not a shot in the off season here. You're like, let me just work. Coach, will you give me some on the run half volleys to work on unless you're specifically doubles training, right? And right. And I was going to say, before I let you answer that, that does make me wonder, big picture here, and I I wanted to ask you this, off-season plans for you. Now, obviously, I know how much of your time is maintenance for your body, making sure everything's healthy, everything's fit, but what does the open, you know, I guess we're what, two weeks into the off-season, three, whatever you want to say. What, how do you divide your off-season training block time? So everybody's different, right? And I think you can see that across one, just between the WTA and the ATP tour, the WTA tour ends earlier. Mm-hmm. The women are able to start, they start their preseason a little bit earlier. And then you have the ATP players that if you're the challengers where you're finishing right before for the Americans Thanksgiving, or if you're on the ATP tour, you're starting essentially after Paris. So call it first week in November. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending on your ranking, you're going on exhibition tours. I mean, you have the exhibition going on in Saudi Arabia right now. I think there's another one in Dubai coming up right before the um, holidays. So it really, you know, I've heard so many different, variable some people essentially do an off season after australia because if you're if you're a top player you don't you could go play australia do your exhibition tour in the De- in december when it's technically the off season grab a bunch of money different cities and then you might not have to play until indian wells after australia that's that's almost a longer preseason than what we have now if you're playing i mean think about the davis cup that was going on during thanksgiving week so long answer saying there's a lot of different ways to go about the off season the way i've always done it and i've tried to tinker with it over the years but it, it usually it starts after thanksgiving mm-hmm. it's that monday after and the first week is more fitness than tennis. A lot of times you've taken a week off, two weeks off after the season to really just let your body and mind settle down after the grind of the, the tour. And it's important to actually do a little bit during that time to keep yourself moving. The worst thing you can actually do that I've learned is just become sedentary cold turkey at home yeah just you know it's easy you're traveling all the time you just want to veg out on the couch for a little (laughs) bit but as long as you're doing a little bit it doesn't have to be every day but four or five days a week just because you want to build the base or or keep the base so when you start preseason it's not all of a sudden you're going through the soreness again i've i've and i I've known this from experience where I did that and I 
got injured the first week because I'd gone from, you go from zero to a hundred, you're ramping up the fitness. You're also trying to hit and it's, it's a fine balance. So for me, it's been more, a little bit more fitness early on. Easy hitting. I'd say most guys hour a day for the first three to five days up the middle, not a lot of movement, getting out the soreness from the fitness and then work. It's, it's building blocks, right? It's so do that. Then it goes into the drilling movement, two on ones, just building the lung capacity, building that consistency, working on any specific point structures or shots that need to be cleaned up from the season. And then by week three and four, it's a lot of set play. It's you, you know, I'm guessing anywhere from 10 to, you know, the goal is usually 10 sets in the week, 10 to 12. And by week four, end of week three, week four, you also have to start building that base for Australia, right? Three out of five sets. So can you play four sets on a day? Can you have, you know, mimic the off day in between at the slams? And then can you come back and you can you play another three or four or five sets that way? And that gives you a, a guidance of where you are for going into the new year. No, it's fascinating to hear. Uh, we're going to get to the draft, I promise, but too many things I have to follow up on there. A, you talk about that February thing. I'm really upset with myself that I never thought of that because that actually is the hidden off season, right? Now, you have to be a top 25 player in the world probably to capitalize on that hidden off season, but post-Australia, like Rotterdam, all the indoor European stuff, right? Like if you're top 25 Maybe you play one of them. Of course, then you get to right. Dubai, Doha, Acapulco. Maybe you play one of them. But is so that's a thing. It's like you can use that second that that month there as an easy month to work your way in. I mean, I I think you really have to be one of the best. You have to you pretty much have yeah. to be top ten, okay. top five, because you're seeing a lot of like yeah guys ten to twenty five. I mean, the Rotterdam field is generally stacked. Yeah. Dubai stacked. Like, I don't know how much it's put in to practice. Yeah. But speaking in theory, like, I have heard guys do it after Wimbledon as well. Ooh. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and Wimbledon is, I believe Wimbledon's a week later Mm -hmm. the last few years than it usually has been. So that might shift. But remember, like, if you have Wimbledon and then you don't have anything before, if you're one of the top guys, maybe, you know, Canada or Cincinnati. Um, And it's, it might not be a full off season, but it's a mini train. You might be, you can put in a a two, three week mini training block. Mm -hmm. Now for guys ranked, 600 i would say you're playing I would futures say right the now top 10 yeah. Uh, yeah i mean yeah if you're if you're trying to claw your way in australian open yeah. qualities right now you're i don't know where the future schedule is right now but you, <laughs> you're in monastir tunisia i can tell you that. <laughs> yeah you're trying to get those points so yeah. it's it's very dependent on ranking mm-hmm. also i would say age sure so, 
yeah. where you are in your career, what your goals are for that year and also the next couple of years. And how do you layer that in? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's also fascinating to hear you discuss how players taper themselves during that off season. Honestly, to me, two on one week sounds just like the worst week, like the fit straight fitness plus light hitting. I can focus there setting up the base, but Maybe it's just me. Two-on-ones are like the bait. Two-on-ones, you you just know regardless of level, you're going to suffer. And like, yeah, I'm curious how that tapering works where it's like by week four, because Australia is coming up, do you actually, maybe it's your a lighter load? Like you talked about the set play there. I'm curious how that works. Yeah, the fitness starts to taper back a little bit. Okay. And it's it's still a lot. I mean, playing four sets is healthy is not <laughs> easy. <laughs> um, and so it, you know, it, it all depends on where you're coming, coming in with too. Like for me, this off season, I didn't play many matches this year. So I already have played probably eight to 10 practice sets mm-hmm. with another three weeks to go before I leave. But I need those reps. Now, if I were coming in off playing six tournaments to end the year and played, say, 15 to 20 matches, well, I need a very different structure and want to work on a few things and and let the mind calm down. And then next week start to, to ramp up the set play. But to your point on the two-on-ones, yes – that absolutely sucks. And <laughs> a lot of times it's built in with some of the heaviest fitness as well. So you are really, let's just say those legs are not being picked up and put down as quickly as you're used to. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 yeah. You do them for time often and it's, it, yes, it's, it's not fun, but it's one of those things you have to get through. And believe me, it doesn't take more than a few days of that to really start feeling the legs moving, feeling in rhythm, in sync. It's just one of those, you know, it's always that mm-hmm. metaphorical ceiling that you think you put on yourself and then you break through and there's open sky up above. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things you need to, to push through. Yeah. Um, again, we're getting in the weeds here, so I don't want to nerd out too much with you, but we have to do it. Two more things here. You talked about that lack, uh, you know, the, the two weeks off or just letting your body relax a little bit after what is such a long season. Now, for our listeners, I would imagine the majority of them aren't pros, but hey, Novak, if you're listening, what's up? Spots open for you on the pod. Um, but to those players who maybe you're a 14-year-old, a 15-year-old who is pretty good at tennis, but like right now you're feeling a little bit burnt out or whatever it may be, your advice to them, I just want to, again, crystallize this, is feel free to walk away from the court, but make sure your body is still intact during that time. That's the key thing there. Yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing is during that time, do things that are enjoyable to you that are active. Okay. Don't do it because it's, you need to do this. Like, yes. And especially as a pro, like it's your job 365 days of the year. 
but you also need that time to mentally like you have to be able to check out if you're switched on and so focused you know every day about this is what i need to do your brain is just <laughs> it's gonna melt like it's not it's not healthy and there's plenty of challenges with that on tour you know i there's just been a lot of it's a struggle i mean i think the bottom line is if you're not if you don't have that outlet if you don't have a creative outlet if you don't have something else to do that's enjoyable that's just relaxes the mind you're going to be anxious you're going to like you can feel the tension Mm -hmm. constantly so you know guys go play basketball whether it's hiking um i'm sure some people like skiing like i there were certain activities that i just didn't want to cross given my injury history i literally you said skiing out loud i was like if you were skiing bk i'm about to yell at you Trust me, I haven't <laughs> skied since I was 11. Yeah. So, <laughs> but I just like people have these different, you know, golf. Plenty yeah. of people play golf. I won't do that with my back until I'm done <laughs> playing tennis. But like, you know, hiking, basketball, just biking, anything that gets you out and moving that is enjoyable to you. And I think the, the biggest factor there is enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It's you need that that joy, that fun, that passion that takes your mind off mm-hmm. off the tennis. No, I feel like from November 10th to that first Monday of Thanksgiving, if you're looking for BK, you can find him hiking some sort of trail in the mountains, San Diego, LA. That, that's, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's the move. That, and that, by the way, that sounds delightful. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, I'm putting that on the reg- – I'm putting that on the list. Yeah, it's nice. Especially when I'm back home at my parents, Mm -hmm. walk around the lake. Um, Could be worse. There's a short hike around the lake. California, you can be outside Mm -hmm. in shorts year-round. So, yeah, I love getting outdoors. I love going to the beach. Mm -hmm. The beach and the mountains are definitely the two places where I find myself able to relax Mm -hmm. the most. Yeah. My last question as it relates to training and then it's draft time, uh, adding strength versus maintaining what you can already do. How do you balance those two things? Like, it, I guess this month period, is this where it's like, look, if you're trying to go from benching whatever to 20 pounds heavier, or you're trying to squat a little bit more, one more plate, is now the time to do that? Or can you still do that all year round? So I guess my views on strength training have changed over the years as well. I lift less weights now than I probably ever have. And I'm more focused on mobility, plyos and movement and do some explosive upper body training and like with weights and a little bit for my legs, but a lot of my leg strength comes from movement and, and plyos. That wasn't always the case, sure. you know, and I think it's, you have to be careful when discussing that because that is easy to discredit all the strength training that I've done throughout my career Sure. to build that base. And especially after my most recent surgery, I really hit the weights 
hard mm-hmm. to really build up the strength and stability and and get myself healthy again. So it's you know it's been a long process for me personally to get to where I am physically and feeling fit and it's both steps were needed now for my performance on court it's helped me to do a lot more of the movement but i wouldn't have been able to move like that if i didn't have that that strength base so it's i think everybody's different certainly it's a conventional wisdom is now in the off season is when you you really put on the strength and try and build that, especially the first couple of weeks. I, you know, for my own personal experience in the past, when I've done preseason training, I would say this is more probably 2017, 2018. We really, we would do the basic weights and movement throughout the year. And then come that first week of preseason, the rep count, the set count got upped a lot in the, the just the first week. Probably the first week to 10 days is when we really started hammering the weights. And then we'd taper off and focus more on the movement. So, like I said, that's I've every offseason is a little bit nuanced. Every offseason you try and learn from the past what worked what didn't work what do you need to do from the current year like what are your goals for the next year and how how are you going to get there yeah. no it, it's uh it's fascinating because mm-hmm. you what it also sounds like is it's like hey when you're 13 14 15 that's the time to crank that's the time to set the base maybe not 13 because you're still growing but in those latter years you know that's the time to it, it, that's when the important work happens yeah it's you know i think especially I was scrawny going into college. I mean, I was probably 20, 25 pounds lighter when I showed up in college than I am right now. So, you know, people develop differently. Look at Alcaraz. Yeah, like, sure. I look at him and I'm like, I was a sophomore in college at his age. And I did not look like that. So, you know, everybody (laughs) develops physically. Everybody's able, capable of adding different loads at different parts of their career. So, you know, I think more so than I need to do this at a certain age or that, it's get a plan, Mm -hmm. you know, research, find someone who's invested in you who's going to be willing to put the work in and then just build consistency. The the one thing I see nowadays is there's a lot of jumping around trying to find, mm-hmm. you know, the hot, like what's going to like the magic pill that's going to shoot you to the top. And uh, unfortunately I still haven't found one of those in my 20 years of tennis. It's just putting the daily work in, sticking to the plan, building off that, and and watching the results grow from there. No, I mean, first of all, what Alcaraz did this offseason, he was scrawny <clears throat> last year, 
And in six weeks, he comes back with 15 pounds more of muscle and like, oh, you want to know why he's a generational athlete? Because he can go ahead and do that. And so certainly, you know, I think it's going to be fascinating to see which other players make those big jumps in the offseason. Obviously, you're on that list of players who we're looking for to make the big jump back into the top 100 here uh, in 2023. But of course, one of the reasons I also wanted to have you on the show today was actually not to talk about any of that. There's a strong open opening 30-minute tangent. That's why he's a returning champion, folks. That's like we love having him here on the show. But the reason I wanted to have you on today is to have some fun to end the week here on the Mini Break Podcast. Now, certainly we've already done that in the first 29 minutes, but we want to have even more fun the rest of the way. And as I alluded to earlier, peaks and valleys weeks. Who thrived? Who fell a little bit short here in 2022? Well, it feels like the perfect way to wrap that week is to talk about which players we should be looking out for to peak in 2023. And the way we're going to do that is by performing an abstract exercise, I suppose, here on today's show. Now, as always, I want to be clear, there are no rules for the draft that's about to ensue. We literally, BK hopped on the Zoom earlier today. I go, hey, here's what I have in mind. Does that work? And his only response was, cool, can we do a snake draft? And I was like, that's a great suggestion. Let's do the snake draft. And so what VK and I are going to do, have some fun today, project the 2023 season. The question we want to pontificate about, I suppose, is this idea of, okay, right now, We have two established young number ones, Carlos Alcaraz, Iga Sviantek. Now, the thing is, though, both of these players, tons of points to defend throughout the 2023 season. Also, they're both extraordinarily young. And at that age, it's very hard to defend that number one spot for the duration of a year. If they both manage to do that, then as expected, maybe we do have two generational talents on our hands. And I think we'll all know how the next decade looks from there, but... As a game of speculation, let's have some fun. We're going to draft who the potential next world number ones may be. And again, it's very loose criteria here for today's draft. Snake draft, we're going to go, uh, again, through each of the players, men's or women's, no particular order, who you think you can make the strongest case for, for being the next world number one. Now, again, these players could have already reached number one in their career. That's fine. It's not like a maiden number one appearance. With all of that in mind, let's pick the next world number one. BK, I ask you, you want the first pick or the next two? Oh, I feel like the first pick's a no-brainer. I know the top um, pick's the easy one, right? Should we just default and say yeah. the top pick, and then we go from there? I, I, I'll I'll give you. Uh, I like it. I'll give you the first one. All right, I'll I like it. Super one. producer Daniel Westoff, give me some draft music, please. All right, <laughs> with the first pick in the 2023, you're going to be world number one draft. The obvious answer, who I would be laughed out of the room for not suggesting first is Novak freaking Djokovic. And it just comes down to the low-hanging fruit available for Djokovic. He played like 40 total matches here this season, and he's still going to end the year inside the ATP top 10. He's still going to end the year, I believe, where is he? Overall, Novak Djokovic number five in the ATP rankings to end the season. Again, didn't play Australia played like three French warm-up events, didn't get to play Indian Wells, didn't get to play Miami, lost to Yuri Vesely in the Middle East. It's like, didn't get any points for Wimbledon, which after Wimbledon just got sued or fined, excuse me, by the ATP, whatever that number was, you wonder if that's going to be the policy moving forward. 
I mean, it's just, you have to pick Novak, right? Like, he's the unequivocal favorite to win Australia. And when he does that, he's going to be the next world number one. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm looking at the rankings here, and he's only, he's exactly 2,000 points behind Alcaraz, <laughs> which is an Australian Open title. Yeah. Not to mention everything else that's, that's coming down the pipeline for him. So, um, yeah. Good pick. That's why I, uh, yeah, that's why I gave you the easy one. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I don't think we need to let. Oh, I guess here's what I will say. I, I want to ask you because obviously you've yeah. seen this era. Novak Djokovic right now. Is he the unequivocal favorite entering 2023? And with what you've seen, do you still think his best is better than the rest? Yes. I'd say the short answer is yes. When he's at the top of his game and we've seen him still have that tremendous hunger in his belly, the fire is there. You know, he's talked about it, but you saw it on display the last half of the year or the last the fall when he was actually able to find some rhythm, play some events, what he did at the year in finals, moving through that draw. And his best is, you know, I still think it's the best. Certainly the gap is starting to close. We're seeing a few of the younger guys. We saw Arun beat him in Paris. Alcaraz has had some great matches with him, beating him in Madrid. I think that's a big hurdle for some of the younger guys to close is once they've beaten him once, they have that a little bit of that confidence that they know what it takes to beat him. They've done it before. And I think that's a major hurdle that a lot of maybe the previous generation, just a little bit older, had really struggled with gaining some of that confidence. Yeah, I, I mean, look, he's number one in the ELO ratings. He was the only player to rank top 10 in both hold and break percentage this year. It's hilarious when you look at his numbers compared to like his career averages. So 43-7 and seven overall this year, he won 86% of his matches in what was ostensibly a down year for Djokovic, right? Well, it's like that 86% number above his career average of 835 he held 88.1% of the time. It's the second highest number for a full season in his entire career. And it's like, makes sense. He's a little bit older. He's got to pick his spots a little bit better, a little bit more efficient moving forward. Obviously, he played a bunch of indoor hardcore tennis as well, but like 88.1 above his career average, top six number on the ATP tour. His break percentage, 27%. Now that number, BK, is 5% below his career average of 32. Let's be clear. Novak Djokovic's career average is he breaks you once out of every three service games. That's a joke. Like, that's actually hilarious. And yet this year, down season by his standards, he broke 27% of the time, BK. That number ranks fifth on the ATP Tour. So, like, again, the numbers, the eye test, all of it says, like, no, he's fine. Yeah, I feel so sorry for him. He's only breaking one out of every four games now. (laughs) No, like, that's tough. (laughs) No, the best is like, I talk about the Ega number, and all year long until the end, she finished at 49.9%, but she was all year long around 52, 53. Can you imagine being like, oh man, like, I just held against Ega, and then it's like, oh wait. I'm going to get broken in I'm the next get, yeah, 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 like, yeah, that's, that's my tough. one. Like, it's just a joke. It's just like... What if you weird. string on Ego? What if you string two holds together in a row? Like, 
Well, then you, you know you're going to ask lose. for the champagne. No, exactly. It means you're down four one, and you know she's about to rip off five straight games, or you're up four one, and you're like, I better hold right. on to this. Like otherwise, yeah, it's, it's yeah. Or it's like Ludmilla Samsonova, and her eyes are closed, and she's just slapping winners left and right, and you're just <laughs> like, yeah, like I don't know. Again, holding serve against Iga Fiontek is probably the most difficult thing to do in all of tennis right now. But that's a conversation for a yeah. different time. All right, Djokovic, the unequivocal first pick, BK. Two and three belong to you. Who are you going with? All right. Number two, I'm going to go Casper Rude. Ooh, okay. Make the case. Yeah, so very quietly, he had the ability to be number one in the world at the U.S. Open this year. He didn't play Australia last year. Plus, you have the United Cup, Mm -hmm. which I'm not sure – exact point total but with a big australia he can he doesn't have to necessarily win it to move into number one there's a lot of points up for grabs certainly we saw he made the finals in miami and so there is some coming off there but a lot of runway for him and everybody's going to be talking about Djokovic. it's it's very Again, I always like he's been so quiet about his progression up the rankings relative to the other names. Like he is a phenomenal talent. Again, he's he was one match away from being number one in the world at the U.S. Open, and I, I'm not sure that's talked about enough. And making the final at the U.S. Open, he's really. I think the last point I'll make on him is he's really made his game much more well-rounded and transitioned very successfully from having the success on clay to now being an all-court player. Yeah, it's a really good case to make. It's been such a slow and steady ascent, right? And like very quietly, again, not something I suppose that gets talked about much in relation to Casper Ruud, but like very quietly, again, back-to-back semifinals at the year-end finals these last two years. And, like, he went, I think the record was 2-4 and four after making that U.S. Open final to end the season. And to have the tour finals that he did was just, like, the exact result he needed heading into the offseason to just sort of legitimize everything we had seen throughout the previous year. But you made the best point, and... Again, sometimes I think we talk about this race to the year number one, and you want to use hyperbole. You want to use your sense of, well, Yannick Sinner's on the rise, and so it feels like he will be a future number one. He's more likely than Casper Ruud, but sometimes it just comes down to math. And like you yeah. said it beautifully. Casper Ruud has seven total wins to defend before the end of win- uh, by the end of Indian Wells. Like He won a Buenos Aires 250. I'll tell you what that matters. Nothing to him. Um, He did not play Australia, tested positive for COVID, to your point. And then he lost round to 32 Indian Wells. You make that Indian Wells result a quarterfinal. You make quarterfinals of Australia. And maybe you go play one of the Middle East events or Acapulco as well. Now, you know, again, the gap between him and Alcaraz is a thousand points. And he has a a free slam to play with. Like, mathematically, he's got two slam finals on his resume right now. You're absolutely right. I I think of all the men's players outside Djokovic where you're just like, come on, it's even easier to make the assessment. Root's the best pick because he has the math in his favor. Yeah, I I think when I was looking through the rankings, the math just stood out to me more than any. Like, he has the game to 
be number one, I believe. You mentioned he has two slam finals, the Miami final on his resume, like semifinals of the year end. He, he has the game, but the opportunity in front of him to and, and I I will say his best bet in my eyes is to capitalize on that now at the beginning of the year before Djokovic starts to get hot. And we know what Djokovic can do in Australia. Yeah. But that said, the opportunities that are in front of him. Let me ask you this because we got into a Casper Ruud debate earlier this week in Peaks and Valleys week. <clears throat> I'm a little bit afraid that this will be his peak. That like what? So since 2015, ready for the list of players who have made multiple slams in a year? Federer, mm-hmm. Djokovic, Nadal, Murray, team in 2020, Medvedev in 21, uh, Ruud in 22. So, like, again, it's really few and far between. And one just wonders, you know, again, if he doesn't get there by the start of Miami, now he's playing defense the rest of the year. And that's so I guess my question is, do you think he has another level to go in his game? Like, do you see another jump? I think that he has the discipline and the work ethic Mm -hmm. to find another gear, which which is – as important as anything mm-hmm. you know I, i'm very impressed with how he goes about his work the steady incremental rise that he's made mm-hmm. certainly when you watch his game you might not see the same look he, he doesn't have the same firepower as a alcarez or a sinner but he has the mentality and you know if there's one thing that we've seen the top guys have it's just that ruthless mentality yeah no I, I think it's well said i always call him the mortal rafa the mortal righty rafa where it's just like the patterns the relentlessness i just do wonder did has he maximized all of the weapons like he's a top 10 server but he's not six six like it's it's just like everything is so based and predicated on his efficiency and executing well Versus like, you know, again, some of the taller guys who you just feel like life's going to be a little bit easier for with the weapons they can manufacture. That said, it's a really good yeah, point. Yeah, no, it's – no, that's – I mean, the last thing I'll say on that, yeah. it's a great point you make because he he does have to work yeah. for his points. Mm-hmm. There's not uh, there's not going to be an easy, you know, like – Well, case in point – The big guys have this. Yeah the serve or like, or like Felix, Roger had Felix the has has February and October two months dedicated indoor hardcore tennis where you're like he's gonna it, those will always be right. good months for Felix right mm-hmm. and you know that can be the clay court season for Rude sure the unfortunate thing for him is as long as there's that guy Rafael Nadal <laughs> still playing <laughs> he, he tends to dominate the clay court season and he Rafa seems to own rude i mean we even saw it at the world tour finals where rafa was not himself clearly but still found his game and and was able to get a win there you know and also what you're saying about if has he maximized i'm curious to see how he handles the start of the year because the season was so long you mentioned he had that stretch after the us open where he didn't well, you say it was two and four, I think, before the World Tour final. Mm-hmm. What did he and Rafa do immediately after they embarked on that South American yeah. exhibition tour? You know, there's 
certainly there's a lot of value in doing that. And every player knows what they need and, and what they want. And it, it'll be interesting to see how he manages this offseason and how fresh he shows up in Australia. I saw uh, mentally as much as physically. No, I did see the Instagram or on Twitter. Someone showed him in one of the Arctic areas or, you know, one of those really cool water fountain scenic hilly areas. So I think he is finally post South American stretch getting some free time in. But you're yeah. absolutely right. It's going to be fascinating to see how he recovers. All right. Pick yeah. number one, Djokovic. Pick number two, Rude. Pick number three, BK. Who are you going with? All right. We're going to go over to the WTA. Caroline Garcia. Ooh. Another one where, like, Sviantec is <laughs> more than double the point total of number two. <laughs> so it does make for a little bit of a stretch in trying to pick who's – obviously, Sviantec has to defend all those points next year, and that will be you – know, that is something very interesting to follow, especially at the start of the year once she started on that run was it 35 straight matches mm-hmm. uh so, 37 i think 37 okay yeah don't sell her short it was a lot it was <laughs> a lot you know too many to count for me clearly yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that didn't start until i think the end of february through the sunshine double through the clay court season so that's certainly a lot but caroline garcia started the year around 70 really was putting together a couple matches here and there, but nothing really took a time. I believe she won a title in July, then came over and ripped through Cincinnati. And just, you could see the confidence that started building. So I think this is another one where the the math um, adds up in her favor. She has seven victories to defend between now and the start of the French open only one of them came at a 1,000 level or higher event. Like, shout out, you know, I, they don't talk enough about Stanford's ability to turn out mathematicians, but shout out to you, BK. I think you're going to change that reputation for them. And you're, you're just absolutely right because you're just like, Australian Open, first round. If she just holds seed, that's a thousand more points. If, you know, she goes to Roland Garros, still a top 10 player, again, just hold seed there. There's, you know, just 1,500 points easy in slams for her to pick up. Lost first round Miami, round of 64 at Indian Wells. She has two quarterfinals, one in Sydney and then a semifinal in Lyon. That's all she really has to defend between now and the start of June. It's like, it's it's the Ben Shelton, Gabe Diallo case on steroids, where it's like Shelton literally did not play a pro match from January to the start of June. Every win he and Gabe er, and Gab earn is just free points on their resume. For Garcia, right. it's essentially the same, but instead of starting at 98 in the world, she starts at 8 in the world or whatever she's at, 5 in the right. world, 4 in the world. So I think that's a really good case to make. Now, the question is, Garcia, the only WTA player last year to hold serve over 80% of the time, she was elite of the elite in that serving category. Is that enough? I think that's a, I mean, that's a number that stands out to me. I, I believe so. Like, again, the way she was playing at the end of the year, the confidence that she had through the through like really the hardcore season into the fall and then winning the WTA finals in Fort Worth. That's a remarkable run to close out the year. Certainly, you know, I guess the one hesitation is 
can she build on that? Can she not rest on what she's done in that accomplishment? And can she recognize the tremendous opportunity she has to become world number one with what you're just saying that the runway that she has up through the French, she has a clean, clean slate in front of her. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. The problem is, again, it's how streaky she can get as a returner. She's the number one <clears throat> server, 49th amongst top 50 players in break percentage. Her break percentage, especially all due respect in women's tennis, to only be breaking serve 27% of the time. Again, that's what Novak did this year, ranks him sixth. Right. Ranks at 49th on the WTA Tour, where the average top 50 player ranks 35.8% of the time. So it is, is there. Oh, yes. Yeah, actually, no, I was wondering, is there some way to measure, like, the percentage of holds versus percentage of breaks, add those two together? Does that number tell you anything? Uh, This is my math brain speaking out loud with no answer. No, it's a great question. No, because as a man who spends a lot of time at Tennis Abstract, let me tell you, I've been in that exact process. And why all these players are ranked top 50 is because their percentages sometimes do add up above 100%. And you're like, oh, so you're winning a lot because you're holding serve and breaking serve. Or like, you know, again, so if you're, again, it's very stupid math. It's it's not like, it's very, right. there are some people listening like, that's not how it works at all. You're dumb. Break percentage, hold percentage are two independent stats, which is very true. But again, the higher uh, add it up. Those two numbers are obviously if, the better you're going to be. Isner doesn't have to break as much as Schwartz. Yeah. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, so here's, <laughs> it's funny. You use those two polarizing examples. I mentioned Garcia first and hold percentage, 49th and break percentage. Daria Kasakina second in break percentage. She's at like 49, one behind only the immortal Iga, but she's 49th and hold percentage at like it's not a nice number, so I'm not even going to say it out loud. <laughs> Which one would you rather be? The control or the controllable? Like the Isner or the Schwartzman? The Kasakina or the uh, Garcia? I'd rather know that I'm holding serve I the agree. majority of the time. And that – because one, like, you might be able to sneak a break. And also it's the fear factor that you put into the opponent that if, if they do happen to break you – like the hardest thing about playing Isner or an Opelka is that if you get down a break, you're like, well, there goes that set. Like I might as well play for set number two. If you if you're playing a returner who's that great, but has a serve percentage that's around the same, okay, you get broken. Yes, you you go into the match, and it can be a little bit demoralizing. Like oh, I hold a lot of time, and now I'm getting broken more. But you also know that you're always going to be in the match. You can always grab a. You can. You always have an opportunity to break with it, with a, a big server. The majority of the time, it's not. It's not in your racket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I think that's really well said, and I think that's why the case is really good for Garcia, where it's just like she has a controllable and. I'm a little jealous. It's a really good pick by UBK. That's like again, you were right. You were Listen. more prepared for this draft than I think. <laughs> That's why I gave you number one. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I asked for the snake. See? Yeah. No, you said and and you <laughs> missed your fantasy playoffs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let me just say a guy who's this good at drafting should not have missed the fantasy playoffs. Um all right. With that in mind Apparently it only uh Yeah, it's tennis centric. <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right. 
Garcia was really high on my board. God, that's a great pick by you. That's just such a good pick. The lesser version of that is Samsonova, but you have to really believe in Samsonova making a leap next year to like, because math-wise, it makes sense with how good she was back half versus what's available to her front half. But in that same theme... I think Own Jabur would be a really good pick here. She has two slam finals. What if they reward points retroactively for Wimbledon? She's got that Wimbledon final on her resume from last year. You know, you look for Jabur as well. Low-hanging fruit in the fact that she also did not play Australia last season. She lost first round of the French Open, lost first round Indian Wells. Only has six wins to defend between now and the start of Miami. Ooh. That's the math pick. Like, that's who I want to pick math-wise. You know what? I'm just going to go two women's it's players. It's not back sexy, to- but... Yeah, exactly. I'm just going to go back-to-back here with women's players. Jabur has to be the pick for the math. And then I'm going to take Sabalenka just because I think she can become world number one. Like, I think there's a world where everything clicks, where it's just like, you remember those double faults? I'm not doing that anymore. Like, here's my favorite number for you, BK, is that she was the only player on the WTA Tour last season to double fault more than 10% of the time, which, again, one out of every 10 service points she's given away for free, um, and yet she still finished the year world number five. Like, she was so much better at everything else in tennis, except for the second serve, and I, I wish listeners could see BK's face right now, it just feels like a 10% double fault percentage is the lowest of hanging fruits. That's outrageous. <laughs> that, is an, that is an incredible tennis stat. Like, if you want to put together just a list of the most odd mm-hmm. or stats that you wouldn't believe... I think that's – if it's not one, it's top five. Well, let me give you one more on this note because mm-hmm. double faults-wise, Arena Sabalenka, 407 double faults for the season. Who Katarina Alexandrova was second closest. How many did she have? Wait, for so the 407 year. double faults on the for season? For Sabalenka, yeah. I'm going to say 200. 289, but like more than 100 more free points in a way than the next highest server. Like the next highest. It's like. How many matches did Alexander play? She played four fewer than Sabalenka. So she played 51. So she averages about six double faults a match there, maybe a little little less than six. Okay. Sabalenka averages eight double faults a match. Like you're giving away a free service point a game. Yeah, exactly. That's just two full games of yeah no that's true I mean that is you think yeah that's that's a double almost a double fault to a service game a game yeah it's just like you're starting love fifteen and you I you might think, as well just put one hand behind yeah. your back at that point like, well it's just like if she cleans that up. Because from a power tennis perspective, we have told you before, Serena Williams, Power Tennis Country Club, obviously, Arena Sabalenka. I think there's, in the manager of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club's office, there's a safe that's never been cracked before. But someday, someone's going to crack that safe, and in it will just be a photo of Sabalenka. And it'll be like, no, 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 this is actually her, this Power Tennis Country Club belongs with her. Now, it hasn't clicked yet, but... She has made multiple slam semifinals over the course of the past two seasons. And I know she's not going to be allowed right now to play at Wimbledon, but like, 
you were you saw the U.S. Open semifinal between her and Iga. Like Iga had to actually play her best tennis to beat Sabalenka. And I just think if you're looking at peaks on the WTA tour, who right now can actually get to that level? Because I think we both would agree. We believe more likely than not that Iga will be number one in the world from start to finish this season on the WTA tour. But if anyone's going to do it. Garcia and Jabur have the best mathematical possibility, and I think Sabalenka has the best tennis possibility. Yeah, I, th- I think if you, if you have the ability to take the opponent's racket out of their hand in a match, you know we talk about like we talked about the serve and the return, and mm-hmm. and having the match in your control is always going to be more favorable to you and less favorable to the opponent. And Sabalenka has that raw power and ability, and that's always gonna, she's always going to have a chance in that. Sure, you can see eight double faults a game or a plethora of errors, but she had, and and that's where you worry about the consistency a little bit. Like, can she do that? You know, match in, match out. But I mean, I think what you said, if she's double faulting ten percent of her points, and she's still five in the world, beat Sviantek in the, uh, I guess, I think it was yeah. the semis yeah. in Fort Worth pretty convincingly in the third set. Um, I, I think that's a good pick. Yeah, I just, I think she's the one of all the names we said, actually, tennis-wise, I would believe in the most. But again, Garcia was probably my highest pick from a math perspective on the WTA Tour. That said, we're slowly starting to venture into, okay, they don't have the math, but I believe in their tennis category. And with that in mind, BK, next two picks belong to you. Yeah, so off the board, that, Djokovic, you know, Rude, Garcia, Sabalenka, Jabur. Who are you going six and seven? So I think you definitely exposed my like my preparation. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm going to Which, just by the way, can I just say, West, off round of applause to BK – Thank you for preparing. That means a lot to me. That's why we love having you on the show. <laughs> I, I'm going to, you know, since we got, I would say we we got the not obvious, but obvious ones out of the way. And now we're we're expanding. So now I'm, I'm going to go into more theoretical and reach. But Good. Um, the first one I'm going to throw out is uh, Taylor Fritz. Mm. Is he a good enough athlete? Make the case. I make the case because of his will. And I've been fortunate enough to see it just on the practice courts with him and just the confidence that he carries. Certainly, like like I said, I, I, I'm stretching here. I think there's you can make the case for a lot of other ATP players as well. But he didn't do much. I mean, he had – I gotta look up this activity in the rankings, but obviously you have the Indian Wells like that. That's a that's a big one coming off the board, sure. Um, round of sixteen in Australia. After that, like a quarterfinal in Monte Carlo, didn't play Real Madrid. I, I like his game in Madrid as well, especially the fast courts. He's a big power player, um, and he like. I think the one thing that he has going for him more than anything is he like he legitimately believes that he'll be number one mm-hmm. and that he has the game to beat these guys and he's there's no there's no fear 100%. when he's out there on court. 
No, we've always called them big spritz here at Crack Rackets because it's just like, you know, like second serve, big moment. It doesn't matter. He's going to do his thing. And I wish I had like a stat to prove like 30, 40 points. He always finds the first serve that he needs to get you back to deuce. But he really does always find the like the belief. You absolutely mentioned it. Taylor Fritz has never lacked that. He also has never not had the tennis ability, the the the, the foundation, the serve, the forehand, the backhand. You would take Taylor yeah. Fritz's foundation as much as you would take anyone else out there in professional tennis. Now the issue is no one will ever accuse Taylor of being a good volleyer. And with all due respect, it's the anti Shakira, right? Like his hips kind of do lie. And so like, they're not, <laughs> yeah, like they're not exactly the most fluid. Um, no. That said, what are two things you can improve on like the most in your practicing? I feel like it's movement involving, like those are the two things you can actually spend tangible time improving. If there's one thing that's going to hold him back it's the same stubbornness that gives him so much confidence and that belief that enables him to beat the top guys i mean also like i want to point out when he went and won tokyo he was in quarantine in korea for a week before that and actually sick with covid like he had did not feel well at all it wasn't one of the mild cases of COVID. And he flew into Tokyo that day and ripped off five straight matches. So like it's it's the intangibles that I think give him the best chance to get there. But he is absolutely gonna need to clean up his approach, like his transition game and the volleys. And can he do that? Like, can he recognize that this is an area that he needs to improve and get better and to steal points from guys to take advantage of him to, to not solely rely on the, the strength the ball of his game and, 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 and continue to add to his game? Because that's the, that's the one thing that you've seen Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal do and why they've been able to stay at the top is they all – I mean, Nadal is one of the – probably one of the best volleyers in the world which is if you look at his game you wouldn't necessarily like how is he the best volleyer in the world like he's a clay he's a dominates on the clay heavy like physical but all these guys continued to add remember when roger took his time off and all of a sudden he was attacking him with his one hander coming over the ball more like these guys continue to develop and continue to tinker with their game, and that's what sets them apart and keeps them up there, and that's what Fritz is going to need. A hundred percent. And again, his actual ability to strike the ball has never been in question. And you're right. Like From the beginning, you want to know someone who loves tennis? Taylor freaking Fritz. Like I just feel much like with Casper Ruud, Taylor Fritz is going to be the best version of himself. Now, I'm still not entirely sure what that best version looks like, but I think it's a really good pick. And like... Again, the math is tough. Indian Wells title, certainly Australian Open fourth round to defend right off the bat. But again, a guy who you feel like can be good on all three surfaces. I, I like the pick, BK. So that's pick number six. Who you got for seven? All again, right, so that, we're, seven, we're getting really, creative here. I really yeah. got to reach. And I don't I mean really to be rude. Reach. But, like, I might have exhausted all my ATP options. Like, I, outside of those three, I'm yeah. like so confident in Iga. So, so now we're going to stretch here again, but 
does Alex Verov have a comeback in him? <sighs> so he's on my list. It's a very good argument to make. Go for it. And the only argument I'm – so this is the argument I'm going to make is that I don't know that somebody else is going to pass Djokovic or Alcaraz in the first six months of the year. Yeah. And so, again, I my default tends to resort to math – my heart is a little bit skeptical of this pick because of just like we've seen Zverev in the past. He hasn't like a really suit. added. Yes, he hasn't really added to his game. He's relied on his athletic. I mean, he's tall, lanky, insanely athletic, hits the ball big off both wings. Again, like, not a guy that can transition super well. Um, but I'm curious to see, and certainly he's had plenty of other things on his mind as well, but I'm curious to see what the injury does to his mentality. Does it kind of reinvigorate him a little bit more? Like, you know, you can – use injuries in a couple different ways. They're part of sports. Some people are, are fortunate that they don't miss a large chunk of time. Others have extended layoffs where they're forced to really examine their career, what they want. There's a lot of downtime and it can, it can really make you think and it can make you go a couple different ways. So he's more of a, like a, a real, roll of the dice pick for me because he certainly has the game and I want to see if he has the ability to to find that extra gear like did this layoff allow him to find an extra gear that can push him over the edge I mean he was playing incredible tennis at the front I that will French say till I die he was going to beat Nadal in that match like if you're asking me who was better through the first 24 games they played Rafa yeah. was up a set but Zverev was the better player yeah, and that was an insane level. Was so it, physical. Was it three hours for it, for a set and a half, or for two sets essentially? Yeah, it was for it essentially was yeah, a set and six. Right. So, you know, that pace wasn't gonna keep up, but um, he's not gonna have anything to defend back half of the year. That's you know. So if he can if he can get through that and pick up his game and. And start to put together. I mean, he's still 12 in the world, and he hasn't played since the French Open. So that's a lot coming off. Obviously, he'll have the PRs to enter, um, but maintaining some of that and being able to keep his seating at some of those bigger events is going to be key as well. No, absolutely. And you mentioned it. It's just like, much like with Sabalenka, there are going to be 15 minutes in every Zverev match where you think this is what the best player in the world looks like. Like not just the best player in the world, this might be the best tennis player I've ever seen. Six foot six, fluid. You hit the backhand like that behind that 140 mile per hour serve, and it's just like there are times when it's unfair. At the same time, right. there will be seven minutes in every match where it's just like, oh, are you just a six foot six push? Like, is this just the boys' tens now? But you're the most athletic ten year old we've ever seen. Like, it's. It's a real catch-22, and, like, you're talking to someone who has on the record said, 
I think Alex Zverev is capable of winning double-digit Grand Slam titles. And the amount of times right. I'm mocked for that take all these years later, whatever, it's the gift that keeps on giving. But I stand yeah. by it. Like, I honest right. to God, stand by it. Right. And so he has to play perfect, come back from injury, big man, ankle injury, never a good thing. But I think it's a good pick. I think he's one of the players who has the tennis to do it. And with that in mind, that'll be our final category here. Who has the tennis to do it? I'll rapid fire because I know you got to go here pretty quickly. Um, you just tell me, yes or no, do you think they have the tennis to do it? Felix. Yes. Yeah. And guess what? The math is his friend too because he was not that great through like the first nine months and then – it hit October, and he was like, "Oh, we're indoors. I'm gonna yeah. kill all of you." Um, and so I like very. I think he's got the tennis and the math. Um, Medvedev, who did it earlier this year and didn't play any clay court tennis in 2022 due to injury. Yes, I still think he has the opportunity to get back there. I agree. Sinner or too soon? If we're talking purely 2023, I yeah. say no. Yeah, you know, there were two players who made the second week of every Grand Slam in 2022, Rafael Nadal and Yannick Sinner. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I like the consistency is great. I I don't see it happening this year. But I, think, yeah. I, I do think he's still young and he has the ability. My argument is that if he converts match point against Alcaraz, the, na- <laughs> the last three months, everything we've said about Carlos, we'd be saying about Yannick. And it's like he was literally a match point away. And so that's why he still has to be in this conversation, in my opinion, on the men's side. Those are really the three I agree. names I turn to. I just, yeah, I agree. I think he's been a little too, like, very consistent at the slams, but still, still young and a work in progress. If I ask you right now, you can buy stock in one, Sinner or Runa, who are you picking? It's a good question. It's tough. Runa a little younger, Sinner a little more proven. You know, maybe Runa because of his he can just do more things. I just feel like he's got a B, a C, yeah. and a D in the way Sinner, you just like, he's going to swing through you, yeah. but he's still working on the other parts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. All right. Those are the men's options, women's side. Coco Goff, Flyer. You know, she was one of my, that was one pick I considered. Again, only 18. I don't see it in 2023. Again, like I think let's let's be very like let, yeah. She, she burst on the scene. And she was still 15, I think. Like yeah. she has it in her. I do think that she will get there eventually, but let's not yeah. let's not put the pressure on her to hit it this year. Especially I mean like like especially she's uh 7,500 points behind Sviantec. She's 7,500 points behind Sviantec. Oh, my God. Like, you know, rough math. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Something like 74, 7,500. Like, yeah, it's tough. She has the game. She has the mentality. She has the work ethic. Let's, let's no, just... Let's my, let her breathe a little bit. My thing is, 
she yeah you're right and if you look at under 21 players the pace she's on she's still right up there not the Serena Sharapova Hingis Sellis Mount Rushmore tier of teenage success but like the Ennins and the Kleisters of the world she's right alongside of and so like yeah so like I agree there's if anything she has continued to exceed the expectations that anyone can have she's steadily been climbing the ranks she's a tremendous doubles player as well like uh, she, if she should be applauded for the more than anything and just for the, the rise she's on and like, and, and content, not just like rest on that, but continue, like just stay the course. A hundred percent. Well said the last player I would throw at you, Jung Chin Wen, the talented young Chinese woman just turned 20. Now she is far down the ranking. She was the only player though, to take a set off Iga at the French open and you watch her power tennis BK. I'm just all in. I'm just like, the chips are in. She could have that sort of transcendent season in 2023. Just look out for it. You know, that that's one that I have not watched enough of her okay, to, to give you a fair. A, a fair assessment. So that's the one I should have sent but you the name of she, before. She'll, she'll be on my radar to watch at, okay. the, at, the, uh, at the Australian Open. I appreciate that. We'll, we'll see with- how your prediction goes. <laughs> Exactly. Well, with all of that in mind, that's our draft, folks. That's who we believe has that potential to perhaps reach that number one ranking, make that push during the 2023 season. Now, a name not on either of our list, but I mentioned it at the top, still on my list, Bradley Klon. I'm just saying, like, I think 2023 is the year. If, if you don't make world number one in 2023, BK, then maybe it's not happening. But this is the year it's happening. You know, it's funny. Wasn't that the name that we joked if uh, if we reached that point, we knew we had completely yeah. lost the plot. <laughs> so I think we've lost the plot then. Yeah, we've lost yeah, the plot. Completely <laughs> fair. All right, well, with all that said, Bradley Klon, always immensely grateful to get the chance to chat with you. Is there anything we should be looking out for, anything we can do to support you as tennis fans moving forward? Um, you know, not that I can think of. Starting the year down in Canberra and Australian Open Quality, so I took the fall off and was – just sorting, sorting through uh, the summer and, and keeping myself in shape and was fortunate enough to play the All-American Cup. And, you know, I think, mm-hmm. you know, quick little shout-out to Nick Monroe and the I team there my for hat. putting on that event. I, yeah, I, the, I know. I, I could have thrown mine on, too. the best gear. Awful hairdo. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it, was a, it was a world-class event. It was run, you know, Nick and the team did a great job of really just learning from other tournaments that they had he had been to what you know tournaments did that players really liked and it was a fun environment i think that you're starting to see more and more trends toward team events certainly with the atp partnering with davis cup now and the united cup and i think and obviously the success of labor cup and and that was you know the format of the all-american cup mimicked the labor cup format to an extent and i i thought that was it was a really fun event. I, I think you really get to see the personality of the players in those events more. Mm-hmm. It's it's less so much of the competitive, put your guard up and and more compete. Uh, you know, you could really see by the end on Sunday that guys wanted to win, but everyone had a good time doing it. So that that was my fall, and you know, just just got back from a two week block in Florida, getting ready for. The Australian Open. 
Yeah, that's half the fun. Well, we will be rooting for you, obviously. I'm very much looking forward to turning on that ATP Challenger TV and watching you play. Now the problem is, what if I text you and I'm like, oh, I didn't love the forehand there, BK. Are you going to get mad at me? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, mess- I'm just messing we'll, with we'll, you. We'll break it down on the next broadcast. Yeah, <laughs> Except we'll do the extensive. We'll bring maybe, out the other. Maybe we could get some slow mo. I can get That's like the the big board. Exactly. You can yeah, do some coloring want, on the board. Wanna, yeah, exactly. I want to draw some big. Mark it up. Right. I'll talk to the producer. We'll get on that. But BK, <laughs> always a pleasure. Be safe. Be healthy. Happy early Thanks, New Alex. Year. And of course, we'll chat more soon. You too. Sounds great. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with the great Bradley Klon. A massive thank you to BK for taking the time to join us. Obviously, all of us hope to see BK healthy and playing his best tennis out on tour in 2023. Of course, in those moments when he's not playing, we also always enjoy getting the chance to chat with him. And I can tell all of you listeners now expect more Bradley Klon on our channels moving forward into the future. Of course, again, it's been a great week of podcasting here at Cracked Rackets. Five GSPs, five mini breaks, three cracked interviews, episodes, all of that content available because of the work of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who day in, day out has a f- of an editing job to do. Of course, a shout out as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest tennis equipment. But with all that said, again, off-season mode. We're rocking and rolling here at Cracked Rackets. So for the great Bradley Klon, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We hope all of you enjoy a fantastic weekend. And for now, you know what we say, that's the break. And we'll see you all on Monday. Thanks, everyone.